Good afternoon. If your Bibles, we're going to look at John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. The title of the sermon is Skepticism and Unbelief. Okay, um, skepticism and unbelief. Uh, let me pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together to search the scriptures for your wisdom, for your guidance in our lives. We pray that you would use this time to speak to us, and to give us practical wisdom that we can take with us and, and live according to for the purpose of the glory of your name. Be with us, guide us, our thoughts, our hearts, our will, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're kind of calculating the number of weeks before the summer officially begins and and we have different plans for the summer. Uh, a few weeks left before the end of the semester. Just trying to think about um, how to maximize those weeks and different topics we'll address. Um, I'm continuing on here in the study of John for today. Maybe next week as well, uh, but before our students depart, we want to have some sort of a word um, before you go out and and conquer the world. But anyway, we're going to look at John chapter 7, the first few verses today, thinking about skepticism and unbelief, because this passage shows us people who come to Jesus with that very attitude, skepticism unbelief, the different types of people that Jesus met in his ministry, even in his own family, that met him with unbelief and the kind of mindset that they had, the skepticism, uncertainty, who is this, and the conclusions that they drew. And so we'll see that in this passage. And I think we can learn from this. We can learn even the temptations that we might have sometimes to have that kind of attitude before Jesus, even as we profess Christ, the attitudes that we might have of unbelievers, skepticism, unbelief, as we come before Jesus. Okay, so we'll think about that. Um, two main points. First, the unbelieving brothers. Unbelieving brothers, verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because... The Jews were seeking to kill him. So after this means this follows the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse that we looked at in chapter 6, and all of that took place in Galilee. And it says Jesus remained there in Galilee because the Jewish leaders in Judea wanted to kill him. And we find out that's because of the healing of the, of the invalid that we saw in chapter 5 which Jesus performed on the Sabbath. And that was the last recorded event in Judea in John's Gospel. And because of that, the Jews are still trying to kill Jesus. Verse 2, Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are performing, that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known 
openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, so now these brothers are likely the sons of Joseph and Mary, Jesus' younger brothers, who were not believers at this time. They're probably aware of all the people who left Jesus. Right? We read about that in chapter 6, after the Bread of Life discourse. A lot of people left Jesus. They stopped following Jesus. So now these brothers give Jesus some ministry tips. And they're saying, if you really want to build up your followers, this is how you have to do it. Go to Judea. A lot of people will be there. That's the religious center where everything happens. Go there and show them the works you are doing and go show yourself to the world. And then John tells us in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's not that they didn't believe that Jesus could perform miracles. Obviously, they believed that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be telling him to do this. But they did not understand what the miracle said about who Jesus is. His brothers did not believe in him. They didn't recognize that this was the word of God in the flesh. And that's why they're saying, go, do your miracles where people can see you. But of course, Jesus already explained in chapter 6 that relying on miracles won't produce genuine faith. And, and that was exactly the case for these brothers. They didn't understand yet who Jesus is because they did not believe him by faith. By the way, um, this is actually a common scenario in many churches even today. Churches are often led by people who don't truly believe in Jesus themselves. They've kind of grown up next to Jesus, just like these brothers, kind of grown up in the, you know, in the family of God, if you will, in the church. So as they get older, they end up in leadership positions in the church. They sit at these vision meetings, at these strategy meetings, and then they think of different ways to grow the church. And we see that often. People in the church trying to guide others spiritually when they don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus, genuine faith themselves. And obviously it can be difficult being in a church situation like that, but the best way to handle that kind of situation is to simply live out genuine faith yourself because real faith will eventually expose the lack of real faith. Now, these brothers say these things, right? Go show yourself to the world. And so now to these brothers, Jesus speaks these pointed words. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The brothers are saying, This is what I would do if I were you, right? And Jesus says, uh, there's a difference between you and me. What the brother suggested might seem like an appropriate strategy to the human mind, but Jesus knows it's not his time yet to go to Jerusalem because we've been told already in the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't do anything 
apart from the Father's will. And it's just not the Father's will right now to go to Jerusalem. My time has not yet come. It's not the Father's will. It's not my time yet. God said, the Father has not said to go yet. But, but in contrast, your time is always here. Meaning for you, any time is right. The difference between the brothers and Jesus is that they choose their own time according to what they want to do. My time has not yet come because he, Jesus does not do anything apart from the Father's will. Your time is always here because you do what you want to do all the time. Um, D.A. Carson in his commentary says this concerning that, that verse. He says, it's almost as if they're being, they meaning the brothers, it's almost as if they're being excluded from divine sovereignty. Not that God suspended his providential reign in their case, right? Not that God's not in control, not that God, right? Like he's still in control, but that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. It's almost as if they're being excluded from divine sovereignty because what they did, like what they choose to do, how they choose to live their lives is without significance as far as God is concerned. It's as if God has a group of people who believe in Jesus, who live to do his will, right? And another group who don't believe in Jesus, who do their own will. To the first group, God orchestrates their every step. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. It's not the Father's will yet. To the second group, it's as if God says, go ahead, do whatever. Because what they choose to do is insignificant as far as God is concerned. And I suppose Christians can end up in that second group too if we choose to live as unbelievers, right? Doing whatever we want to do. I mean, think about this. The brothers, they may, like, they're saying, make your travel plans, right? They're making travel plans for Jesus. Go to Judea and said, this is what you have to do to grow your followers. And we're often like that. We're often like these brothers. We make our plans. We make our travel plans just like the brothers. We make our future plans because this is what I have to do to, to grow my career. This is what I have to do to grow my money, my portfolio. This is what I have to do to grow my family. This is what I, I, I will do to grow my enjoyment of life. And we line up our future plans all without much thought to God's will. And in that case, Jesus says, your time is always here. It's as if our actions, when we live like that, it's as if our actions are insignificant to God because we don't do God's will. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that his works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet come not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. The brother says, show yourself to the world. 
the world. And in John's gospel, that word the world is typically, he's not talking about just, you know, the earth. Okay? Um, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 10, it's the world that's in darkness that does not know Jesus. So, so Jesus now picks up on that word as they said, go show yourself to the world. And Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. And that's because you belong to the world. And he's saying, you belong to the world, you're one with the world, and that's why you're safe in the world. But Jesus was different. He says, the world hates me because, again, according to John chapter 1, Jesus is the light that came into the world. I testify against the world, and the world hates to have the evil, its evil exposed. So think about it. The brothers were at home in the world with their worldly unbelief. Worldly unbelief. And that worldly unbelief is demonstrated through their relationship to God's will. Right? What is God's will? Like it doesn't really matter what God's will is because they lived according to their time. Right? That was the demonstration Evidence of their worldly unbelief. They don't follow God's word, God's agenda. They don't even recognize the incarnate word of God before them in Jesus Christ. And so, so that's the broader question that we should ask ourselves. How at home are we in the world? How at home are we in the world? Am I characterized by worldly unbelief, even as I profess to know Christ. In a life group discussion this past week, we talked about joy because last Sunday we heard about joy. In one of the young adult groups, we asked the question, think of a time when you were the most joyful in your life. Think about the time when you were the most joyful in your life. Was that joy because of Jesus or something else? Or maybe you can ask the question in a different way. What brings you the most joy today? What would put a huge smile on your face? What would make you feel like you're walking on clouds? What brings you the most joy today? Is it Jesus or something else? Now, some people always try to dissect that question and try to make questions difficult for the life group leader. But it can be both, can't it? Why can't we have joy in Jesus and something simultaneously? I mean, we're not saying it's always cut and dry, black and white, and things like that. You don't have to make it difficult. But, I mean, if we, we're just saying, if you honestly evaluate your heart with that question, what would it reveal about your heart? How at home are we in the world? Am I characterized by it? worldly unbelief. How much do we belong to the world? How much are we one with the world? And that's what we see through these unbelieving brothers who suggest for Jesus to go and show himself to the world. Secondly, the skeptical crowd. Skeptical crowd, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he, Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, this seems contradictory to what Jesus just said, 
but we can conclude from this that the father now prompted Jesus to, to go to the feast. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Um, the Jews here probably referring to Jewish leaders in Judea. And it seems like they're expecting and hoping that Jesus would show because their desire was to kill him. Verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no. He's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now John tells us that now there was uncertainty among the people concerning who Jesus is. They weren't sure. There were differences in opinion. Now, as Jesus speaks to this crowd, right, of people who are uncertain, as he speaks to this crowd of skeptics, um, we see, we see a few characteristics of the skeptics' uh, faith, right? Their, if, whatever you want to call it, their empty faith or their faith that's lacking. The, the people who are skeptical about Jesus, what are their faith uh, characterized by? Um, verse 14. And I'll just, for the sake of clarity, I'll just state Three things, uh, and I guess you can think of it as subpoints. First is be willing to do God's will. Be willing to do God's will. Verse fourteen, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marvelled, saying, "How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied?" So the people are obviously now impressed at Jesus, his teaching. They're thinking like, "We don't know." where this came from. Like he never studied under any famous rabbi, right, that we know of. So where did he gain this knowledge? Verse 16, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. So as the people are puzzled, as they're impressed, as they're marveling and, you know, this is wondrous, now, what they're really asking is, okay, so this is, this is like really impressive, but is what Jesus, is, he, is what he's teaching, is it true? Jesus responds by saying, uh, my teaching is not, it's not from me, it's from the Father who sent me. And then he says, if anyone will, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know. He will know whether the teaching is from God. The, the crowd, again, is, they're skeptics. They're uncertain about who he is. You know, they have different opinions. They're skeptical. They're trying to figure this out. Who is he? Is this really from God? Is what he's teaching true? Jesus says, if you really want to know the answer to that question, you must first be committed to doing God's will. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Because if a person stands above God's word, right? If a person stands above God's word and judges God's word, then he will never know if it's God's will. But if a person first commits to doing God's will, right? No matter what your will is, God, I commit to do it. 
I submit myself to it, then God will lead him to know his will. So that's one characteristic of this skeptical crowd. They're saying, who is this? Where did this man get this teaching? Jesus says, you know, first be committed to do God's will. Um, you know, we often ask this question, right? What is God's will for my life? Many of you are graduating soon. What is God's will for my life? Do I do this? Do I do that? Do I go here? Do I go somewhere else? Some of you are maybe at crossroads in your career, right? What is God's will for my next step? The key, again, to answering that question is we must first be willing to do God's will, right? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. But again, if you're trying to find God's will to see if you're okay with God's will, right? then I'm standing over God's word. I'm the one in judgment of God's word. And that doesn't work in trying to find God's will. Okay, so again, that's the first characteristic that we see of the skeptical crowd. Jesus says, first, be committed to do God's will. Second sub-point, be willing to do God's already revealed will. Be willing to do God's already revealed will. Next, Jesus says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Uh, Jesus is now speaking to his motive. He says his motives are pure and true because he's not seeking his own glory and he explained that again in the, uh, in previously in John. He seeks the glory of the Father. So he's trustworthy. But now he contrasts his own intentions with that of the crowd. Um, I seek not, not my own glory, but the one who sent me. And then, and then he directs the attention to the crowd again. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now he uses this as an example of how they're not genuinely seeking to know God's will. To do God's will. They're they're not genuinely seeking to know God's will to do God's will. Because obviously trying to kill an innocent man is against the law of Moses. So they have the law given to them. They know the revealed law of God, yet they don't care about breaking the law. Right? In other words, if you're not obeying God's already revealed will, then how can you be genuine in seeking to know if what I'm saying is God's will? So Jesus calls them out, exposes their twisted motives in seeking to know if what Jesus is teaching is actually true. And from God. And again, this is another thing that we 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 do, right? right? Um, seeking the will of God while not exactly obeying the already will will of God. Lord, show me your will. Lord, show me your will. And then, like the next part of the prayer, you know, is important. 
the next part of the prayer is the part that says like, because I want to live for you and for your glory. But it's almost as if we pray emphatically, Lord, show me your will. And then you say it like quietly in your mind. It's as if like God doesn't hear our thoughts and like if I don't say it, it's not as important or emphatic or something like that. Like, like so, I mean, you might not do that really, but like that's kind of like the dynamics that's going on often in our hearts. Where you know you're not genuinely sold on doing God's will. But God, I got to know what your will is. And the test of whether we're genuine in seeking to know if this is truly from God or, you know, what his next steps are and things like that is, am I living for God now? Am I following God's already revealed will? And thirdly, uh, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances. Do not judge by appearances. Verse 20, um, you know, Jesus just said, why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? The crowd denies wanting to kill Jesus. Or maybe the crowd consists of more than just the Jewish leaders, right? So it's possible that there's some people in the crowd that had no idea what Jesus is talking about. In any case, they deny it. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Again, he's referring back to the healing of the invalid in chapter 5. Jesus performed that on the Sabbath. Jesus says, says, I did one miracle. And that's why you're trying to kill me. Verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. So now Jesus makes an argument here that they, these Jews, circumcise on the Sabbath. He says, you do this. Because to circumcise on the eighth day is in the law of God. Right? And also to rest from work on the Sabbath is in the law of God. So if a child's eighth day is on the Sabbath, what do you do? They have to break, break the law to obey the law. Which isn't really breaking the law, but they have to break the law to obey the law. So that's what they do. They make a hierarchy of laws so that they can obey the law. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. He healed on the Sabbath to make a man's whole body well, which wasn't breaking of the Sabbath at all. So again, Jesus exposes their inconsistent standards. And he says this in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills both the Sabbath and circumcision. But the Jews missed that because their judgment was superficial. They were far too concerned with appearances to judge rightly. And to judge rightly would require faith. 
to see the situation beyond the appearances, beyond the surface, with the eyes of faith. You know, um, half-truths are deceiving. Half-truths are dangerous. Um, so much of the arguments that we hear around us today is based on half-truths, you know? Um, so many of the people who are like so animated and willing to fight for a cause, willing to die, you know, are based on half-truths while ignoring the other half of the, of the truth. Um, obviously, the, the, the trial of Derek Chauvin this past week was a historic event, not only for our city, but across the nation, even the world. And uh, I mean, if you're following the trial, it seems like it, it, it would have been hard to come to any other outcome of that trial, right? Like the defense was trying to argue that it was because of this, the drugs that he had in the system that, that caused his death. Or, you know, they tried the, it could have been the exhaust from the, the vehicle that contributed to his death. But, but at the end of the day, it's really hard to defend a knee on the person's neck for nine and a half minutes, right? Like, like you can't, like, how do you defend against that? But then now, you know, that kind of got us thinking about the trial that's coming for the other three officers, which is coming later this summer. And that's going to be very interesting because, I mean, who knows what's going to come up in the case and it, things like that, but there's a part of the truth. There's a part of the truth that says they were not only involved, but they were accomplices to what we now know is murder, right? Um, so now there's a real argument for that. But now at the same time, now this, just, this is just me speaking personally. If I'm honest with myself, I feel like if I was in that situation, I probably would have done the same thing. And I'm thinking like 90% of us in that kind of situation, and you know, we're putting in like police culture and you know, first day on the job or whatever, like those kinds of things, probably would have done the same thing for most people. So now how do you handle that? No doubt, like when the trial comes, people are gonna have strong opinions about this case. Such a high profile case. So I just hope they get a fair trial because it's such a high-profile case. You don't know how it's going to play out. But the point is, don't be so quick to take one side over the other based on partial truths. Because half-truths can be dangerous. Only God fully judges, um, correctly judges with the full truth. We often, as, as sinful human beings, judge by appearances. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. Remember, earlier, Jesus' brother said, go and show yourself to the world. And at that time, Jesus said, my time has not yet come. 
But that's exactly what Jesus will eventually do. Jesus will later show himself to the world, for that is the reason why he came to the world. He'll do that not through the works of miracles that the brothers are telling him to, to demonstrate, but Jesus will show himself to the world through his death on the cross. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as Jesus will eventually reveal himself to the world, how do you see who Jesus is? Jesus can only be seen rightly through the eyes of faith. Not with superficial judgment, because with superficial judgment, people will say, oh look, he's a deceiver, a charlatan, a thief. It's good. He, he called himself the king of the Jews, and look at him now. But to see beyond the surface would require faith to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Let's just take a moment and pray. Uh, we see a crowd before Jesus with their skepticism and unbelief. We see even in the same you know, family of Jesus with his brothers and their unbelief. And uh, um, obviously, with that kind of attitude, uh, they miss who Jesus is, what Jesus is about. I think there's a lot of great lessons that we can learn from this as we try to think about what kind of uh, faith I want to live with as I follow Jesus Christ. Okay? What will characterize my personal faith in Jesus Christ? Okay, so let's ponder these things. Uh, am I really truly willing to do the will of God as I seek the will of God? Am I truly obedient to the already revealed will of God? Am I really looking at God's word, Jesus, through the eyes of faith as I tackle the different situations in my life? Are my actions significant in the realm of God's will because I choose to do His will? Just take a moment and pray before we close with the song. Let's pray together for a moment before we close our time. Let's pray that we will finish this semester off well for those of you that are students. And uh, many of you are making decisions about your life and your future. And let's pray that we would genuinely in our hearts submit ourselves to the Word of God, to God's will and plan and purpose for us. There be real, genuine submission to Christ, a willingness to do His already revealed will, a commitment to follow Him no matter what, not uh, standing above in judgment over God's Word, but submitting to His will. Uh, come what may, for the pleasure of His name, for the glory of God and only God, God alone. Show me your word, show me your will, 
that I might follow you for the rest of my life. And uh, even as uh, we were, you know, looking at the verses, what popped into my mind was the story of Ruth and Orpah, you know, on the road back to um, back to Judea, I guess. Um, how Naomi was saying to both of them, "Go, go back. Like if you come with me, like what's gonna happen? Like you don't have a future if you come follow me. I don't have a husband for you to marry." Um, but then, you know, R Ruth said, "Where you go, I go. Your God, my God." And she still followed. And then Orpah made a really logical decision to go back to her people and because the future looked bright brighter for her in that way um, and and who knows like maybe she got married maybe she was happy maybe she had kids maybe she you know what I mean like maybe she lived a prosperous earthly life but the point is like we don't know because her name kind of ends in the Bible at that point when she chose to go back like her decision became insignificant in terms of uh, God's redemptive purposes. Whereas Ruth, by her act of faith, um, became, uh, you know, a matriarch of God's people. And forever, her name matters in the book of life and all of eternity uh, because of her decision of faith to follow God's will no matter what. Um, that kind of popped into my mind because that's exactly what we're talking about when we're choosing to you know, follow, follow Jesus, live according to God's will. Um, God, may I not waste my life, this one life you give me, living an insignificant life as far as God is concerned. Show me your will, show me your word that my life would count for all of eternity. Let's just pray that for a brief moment and close our time in prayer and benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your constant care, your shepherding comfort, your presence with us, Holy Spirit, always in our presence, walking with us through thick and thin. We thank you that you do that so that we can become strong in Christ so that we can live for you, so that we can exalt the name of Jesus Christ in this one life that you entrust to us. In the decisions that we make, whatever our next steps are, Lord, may there be a resolve and a commitment to do the will of God. Show us your will. Show us your word. Plant it deeply within our hearts that we might follow you and bring glory to your name. Pray that for every single person here, whoever might move, fo move forward, beyond, into the next steps, after this month, Lord, help us to go with that resolve to live for the glory of your name. Help us to be faithful in the present with what you entrust to us now. Help us to, to live for you and demonstrate authentic faith. Thank you, Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible unchanging covenant love of the Father God and the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you. God's people, both now and forever. Amen.